cash needs to still be around because one, it needs to be a contingency system. Two, it needs to be an accessibility point of view that you've got low income earners who, low income earners and older people are the most likely to use cash still, right? Because cash also has a psychological effect when it comes to budgeting. So we've seen these envelope stuffers and all those kinds of things where people are now putting money into envelopes because for them, that's their budgeting method. That's work. However, what I see in the future is that the role of cash will change from a transactional point of a transactional tool to a store of wealth instead. Hello, and welcome to the Market Bull Podcast. Please note, topics and stocks discussed in this podcast are not financial or investment advice. Joel Kandaya is a teacher by profession, but has amassed over 200,000 followers across TikTok and Instagram for his education focused on the history of money. The page he runs educates viewers about money from stories about the artwork, security features, when new limited editions drop, and other very interesting facts. On the show, he talked about the evolution of Australian coins and banknotes, the impressive security features that have been added over the years, why he has exploded in popularity, where he thinks cash sits in a digital future, and much more. A super interesting deep dive into physical cash and where this might go. Here is Joel Kandaya, The History of Money. So hello, I'm Ben Kostrich and this is the Market Bull Podcast. Joining me today on the show is Joel Kandaya, uh, a teacher by profession, but also I guess his alias is the history of money. Uh, this is a, a, a page on social media that has encapsulated such an interest with over 130,000 followers on TikTok and again, 66,000 on Instagram. And it's all about, well, the niche of, of money uh, and the, the specialties and excitements in it. So Welcome to the show, Joel. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Really appreciate it. Uh, you're, as we said, a teacher. You've always been interested in education. Yep. And this would have been, well, again, a whole journey to venture into this infatuation w- with money and currency. Yeah. But your your history and where you've come from, I mean, what is what is your background and how have you navigated to where you've been? It's it's weird. I, the, the fascination of money would have started as a kid. There's photos of me holding money, coins, notes, whatever. But I didn't know the true story until until well laid down the track. So when I was five, my parents took me to a speech pathologist. I couldn't really speak well, not well or properly, just, I just wouldn't speak often. And so it was concerning. Um, so speech pathologist put a range of stimuli in front of me, um, toys, whatever. But one of them was some cash, it was a, like a uh, cash register and some play money. And I went straight to it, started playing with it. You know, it was just that sort of thing. And I started talking. And they're like, you got to get him like cash register, you got to get him play money, you got to get him all that kind of thing. And you know, just get it all, get it, just get him interacting with it. So I did. And so my parents got me currency from Malaysia, where my parents originally from, and other toys and all that kind of thing. And that's where my speech started developing. And from that, I started collecting coins and notes as a kid. So I was sort of had a little album and some notes. And it was weird because none of my friends collected currency. You'd hear the odd thing where, their, my friend's grandparents would, but wasn't really spoken about. And through high school, kept it going. And yeah, just sort of just slowly building quietly. And I'd go to coin shows and stuff. And I'd be by far the youngest person that was there, which was intimidating quite a, quite a bit. Um, and then, yeah, for uni, I sort of, there was a coin dealer in Krillian Arcade I used to visit all the time. And then they went bust because the company that owned them went bust during the GFC. So I just pretty much stopped looking at me. It was just sort of there, but I didn't really care about it. I just focused on uni, did what I needed to do. Um, but I've always been, always been passionate about money. I've always been always passionate about financial literacy education as well. And I was coaching a junior cricket team um, while I was doing my double degree in commerce and economics at UWA. 
And one day I overheard kids talking about buying a new bat, but I didn't know how to save money and all that kind of thing. It's like, do you guys not know how to save? Do you like, has anyone taught you the strategies? And they're like, no, no one's really taught us. Our parents don't really talk about money. So we just try and figure it out ourselves. It's like, that's weird. Like, shouldn't they be teaching at schools? So I know I didn't get taught at school. Um, and whilst, and this was probably my last semester at uni. I was like four, four and a half year double degree. I was looking for grad jobs, you know, in pro commercial banking. And I was like, no, nah, this is me. I want to be a teacher. So I went being a teacher, did my grad, graduated from the UWA, went straight to Nordstrom, did my grad dip in education, majored in um, business studies and humanities, did all that, started teaching. Um, and then, yeah, I was, COVID hit probably five years into my teaching degree and kids came up to me, this one was I was teaching at Scotch College and they said, oh, oh sir, you're in a TikTok. So it's like, no, I'm, the, I'm on the Tim Tams, but um, <laughs> yeah, and so I was like, I was very curious about this app because you sort of, you know, you see on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, but I said, well, TikTok, oh, this seems interesting. Like niches are being talked about on this app. People have different stories. I was like, okay, maybe I'll just try something here. So I made a video about the history of the $5 notes. So going from the paper, just a little 15 second video, bam, we got 75,000 views. I was like, people want this stuff. And yeah, and my students already knew that I had a collection about money. And I remember like when the $5 note came out in 2016, I brought a whole lot of them to school and there was like this exchange we did and it was pretty cool in that respect. Um, but yeah, I just sort of started slowly making videos, trying to find my niche. Um, I saw coin collecting, bit of financial literacy, bit of economics. And it was a coin collecting stuff and banknote stuff that just resonated with people. Great. And so 2020, 2020, yeah, about 2020, just slow video here, video there. Got my first news feature in July, 2020 on Yahoo Finance and Channel 7. Like, That's weird. Some, someone's actually talking about what I'm, what, what I'm doing. And it was funny because people were contacting me during that time and saying, oh, hey, you know, lockdown was happening and people at home said, hey, I found my mum's collection. I found my dad's collection. I found my grandparents' collection. Can you tell me about this, this, this? I was like, okay, people are now in that downtime. Generally curious about generally it. Generally curious about it. Yeah, they're very curious. And so I started making more videos. And then 2021, it just sort of blew up. It was news article after news article. I think I was 2,000 followers at the start of 2021. End of 2020, I went up to 100,000 followers at the start of 2022 on TikTok. And I hadn't even started Instagram yet at that point. I was like, what is going on here? And I, and I still pinch myself because I didn't, for such a long time, I was made to feel so weird about my hobby from everyone around me. Like, what is this? Why are you collecting money? Why are you spending more money for money? It doesn't make sense. That's, that's essentially the tripe, the tripe for a numismicist, which is someone who collects coins and banknotes. They're like, they spend money to make less money. That's, that's sort of the weird thing about it, but it's not really the case. Um, yeah, and so I just kept making TikToks and, you know, and started collaborating with different people and, and um, yeah, and I think it was great. And then started an Instagram account and just the media just kept going on to it. You know, Channel 7 were doing articles every couple of weeks. ABC wanted me for every, you know, radio interview here and there, every substation or little station around the country. Oh, can you talk about this? Can you talk about that? Then the Queen died, which then led to another escalation of, and when she passed away a year ago, it was just like, oh, the queen coin's going to be where? What's the energy of King Charles going to be look like? And so a lot of speculation and all that kind of thing. And so it's been this wild journey where we've seen this big, big boost of coin collectors. A lot of, especially a lot of young collectors and a lot of collectors who have collections from their parents or their grandparents who have now discovering more about the hobby. So I feel my role in this now is not someone who's telling people, 
oh, your coin's worth so-and-so, is more so understanding the history, the, the niches of it, the, the features of the note, the features of the coin, understanding the processes at all. Because that's where I get the joy. Like, my collection is actually quite small. Overall, people think, oh, you got a lot of coins or whatever. I actually, most times I get something in, it goes out straight away, I give it away or I sell it straight away, whatever, because I'm so interested about the stories, the history, the processes. And I feel that's been my role in that. I've been doing some work with the Perth Mint, the Royal Australian Mint, um, and you know, liaising with RBA and stuff and talking about, this is what the notes are, this is what they represent, this is what the coins are, this is what it's made out of, this is the process behind it. So it's been really good to sort of see something that I was made to feel weird about as a kid to become somewhat mainstream in, in a space of just a, sh just a few short years because you can make one video and then someone else makes another video and then someone else starts finding the passion and starts sharing that. And so it's just created this sort of roll-on effect. And so, and there's a lot of shows on, like a lot of coin shows and, and banknote shows and, and whatever. And there's cues every show that comes out. Like um, the Royal Australian Mint did a pop-up stall at the Adelaide show a few weeks ago and the line was 300 meters long and people waited since 1am for the show to open up at 10am to get in. That's how crazy it's become. Because it's become this people who sort of, they, they're curious about it, but they also find a tribe by the community that's been developed of it. And therefore it just sort of self-perpetuates itself. And it's been great to have my role in that. Yeah, because I mean, I think the pandemic time definitely accelerated. You had finding these communities and finding these niches yeah. because I mean, the position that you're in now, you could say you're in an Australian point of view, almost mm. one of the guys to go to, to learn this. But have you noticed that it's mostly from that education and curiosity side that people have been following you? Or is it more again from that, as I talk about like investment strategies, like actually the idea of holding these sorts of currencies yeah. and then sitting on them and seeing the value appreciate. I mean, where, where's it sort of been? Lying? I think it's come from that, the investing side, or I, I don't want to call it investing in that respect because Proper coin and banknote investing takes a lot of research, a lot of history, liaising with the right people, sourcing the right banknotes and stuff to build a proper investment portfolio from rare coins. Like, you know, same with art, same with rare wines and all that kind of thing. The same thing applies to coins and banknotes. There are and there are a few niche decimal coins. So, you know, like I'm talking about five cents to $2 coins that are worth a little bit more due to a certain feature or an error that's occurred. So they've come in and asking about that, but then they've come and discovered my content and they've now learned, oh, this is actually pretty cool stuff that I didn't know there's that much detail and process behind it. So now they like, now they, the people want to click to before initially we're trying to, um, I guess, try and make a profit or trying to sell something quickly. But now they're like, Oh, I'm actually really interested in this hobby. I found this niche. I want to collect just colored $2 coins, or I want to collect every single polymer banknote around the world. And so getting those people on board is great, but I'm still finding the on this a bit of an ongoing battle of trying to get rid of the speculators from the hobby because they, they ruined the hobby. So, Last couple of years, the Royal Australian Mint's put out a lot of new release, new releases. They never, they never used to sell out pre-pandemic. They used to be excess spares, non really care, care about because the hobby was still in its fledging phase. And because it just shot up so quickly, every release the Mint put out sold out straight away. But then you had speculators coming in. You know, like you get the sneaker bots and all those kind of things. The same thing happened in the coin collecting community in Australia. So the people were buying them up and then they were selling four or five times the face value or the retail value straight away within a day. And then people buying it because they're afraid of FOMO. And then the FOMO happens. And so you see the price go four or five times up of retail within two days. And then it crashes back towards near retail come ups later, but it just kept happening. And so mm -hmm. my role became there because I was educating people. People are now learning because of that. So I don't, I don't mind if people want to know how much their coin is worth. But what, they got, what people need to realize, especially with circulating coinage, 
99.9% of your coins aren't going to be rare. It might have a fancy design or it might be commemorative, whatever, but it's probably not going to be rare. So whilst you're here, why don't you learn about this, about that coin? Why don't you learn mm. about that? And then maybe get into it and appreciate the beauty of physical currency in itself, especially in a, in a period where we don't really use it that much anymore. Yeah, well, that's a point we're going to talk about yeah. later on. But I mean, even I can remember as a kid seeing a 20 cent coin or a $1 and seeing it different to the others yeah. and being like, oh, this is cool. Like, I kind of want to hold on to it, but having no idea as to why there's certain artwork work or design yep. or, or again, you just said then, not all of them are going to be exceptionally sought mm. after. There, there's a lot of releases, but talking about almost a backstep, the Australian currency history, yeah. almost its, its origins. I mean, what where, what do you talk about when, when you're talking about how currencies evolved and the history of Australian currency? I guess currency in itself probably didn't exist in Australia until European settlement. I think amongst Indigenous tribes and, and nations and countries across the country, it was all done through barter and trade. And especially um, if you look, go back through, you know, it's the world's oldest surviving you know, civilization. Trade would occur across oceans between, you know, New Guinea and New Zealand and, and India and, and across there. And so a lot of bartering has happened. But when the Europeans, you know, when it first, we sort of first settlement in 1788, there was a small amount of currency that was brought in by the British. So a lot of small British coins and whatever. But in order for the colonies to survive, they had to pay for the imports that were coming in. So ships would go by Botany Bay and Port Jackson, drop off what they needed to do. Currency was leaving the country. But because the economy was still fledging, they could not generate... But they could not, sorry, they could not use a form of currency to facilitate transactions in the economy. So there was a lot of bartering that was also still happening. And so because of the shortage of currency, um, Governor King, who was the king at the time, I'm oh, sorry, the, the governor of New South Wales at the time, started, uh, he put out a proclamation. So a proclamation said, here are 12 coins that can be used um, as currency in the colonies of New South Wales. So there are coins such as, um, the, the, there's like a thing called a cartwheel penny. So it's a British penny that weighed about 35 grams, which is about twice the weight of a 50 cent coin, which is huge as it is. And that could be used. And, and there were coins that were from India. There were coins from Portugal. There were coins from, from you know, all around that sort of trade, that big trade era that we saw, that, that period of this era of discovery that we saw. So those different currencies come in, but they allocated different values in pound sterling. And that became hard to transact through there. So that was the first part. Then we had rum as our currency. Because those currencies still had to be traded out and be spent out. So the New South, New South Wales government um, spent, they created, because rum can be created from a whole bunch. And it wasn't just rum, rum, like we know, like Jamaican rum or Caribbean rum, whatever. It's rum was just any distilled spirit. So they would distill gallons and drums and barrels of it to pay for, pay workers. They pay the army corps. They paid to build the hospital, which is still still standing in, in Sydney there. Um, so... That was a form of payment until Governor Lockwood Macquarie came in. And this was right after the Rum Rebellion where Governor Bly was sort of forced out because the the call, the New South Wales call run by John MacArthur, who was on the old $2 note, he had disagreements with um, with Governor Bly and then they forced him out. And then um, Macquarie came in and tried to sort everything out. And one of the things that Macquarie did was he imported a large amount of Spanish do dollars. So Spanish dollar back then was the equivalent of the US dollar that is now. It is the currency... That was well accepted around the world that could be traded with great liquidity and ease. And whether he got a forger and the forger punched out holes in every single Spanish dollar and they imprinted New South Wales on every chunk in the middle. So the chunk in the middle was called a dump and around it was called a holy dollar. So you might recognize the Macquarie Bank logo is actually the holy dollar representation of it. That's why 
the Macquarie Bank logo is what it is. There we go. That's a fun fact. For there the you listeners. go. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the inner was worth um, 15 pence and the outer was worth five shillings. And because it was stamped in New South Wales, the money couldn't be taken outside of New South Wales. So you still had some supporting currency that was created in there. Then um, they managed to hoard in a big bunch of currency into the colony from bridge currency. And that was great. So there was some, some functioning currency in there. Then the gold rush happened in the 1850s. Um, we saw big pockets of gold being found in New South Wales, in Victoria, South Australia, and in Kalgoorlie and WA as well. So they needed places to refine the gold. So 19, 1855 was the first branch of the Royal Mint that was in Sydney. Then I think 1870 would have been Melbourne. And then the Perth Mint in 1899. So those, or 1895, I can't remember the top of my head. So those three mints were created for the purpose of refining gold, turn them into gold sovereigns that were actually essentially still British currency because their branches were all mint. And then that helped support it. Then we had Federation 1901 and there was calls by the government to stop using, relying on the British pound as a currency and start creating our own Australian pound. And that's what we saw in 1910. Uh, sorry, 1909, we start selling the, the bronze coins. In 1910, um, we saw the silver coins. And in 1911, we got the bank notes. And this is one of them here. So this is a... Um, a ten shilling note. Um, so it's, it's I mean, a pretty, it's a pretty, it is a massive, yeah, yeah. it is a massive note. So if you compare it to a fifty dollar note, it is huge. Yeah, it's and ten shillings is equivalent to the uh, conversion value of fifty cents, right? But fifty cents back then had a purchasing power of fifty dollars right now. So it's a big note. It could be converted into gold straight away. So you can go to a bank and say, "Hey, I don't want a note. I want to turn to a half sovereign." So they give you gold. So this was. All the banknotes back then were easily converted into gold. Um, and so the currency was, was 10 shillings, one pound, five, 10 pounds. And that was pretty much the main broad currency. They had, they had notes up to a thousand pounds, but a thousand pounds back then was equivalent to about a year's salary. So it was a lot of money. Um, the only really use were interbank transfers and most of the banknotes were destroyed later on down the track. You so, wouldn't want to be caught losing. No, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be caught losing. Exactly. You don't want to lose a thousand pound banknote, especially back in, in the 1910s, 1920s, there's a lot of money. You could walk in there, here you go, I'm going to buy a house for that straight away, you know? Um, and that was pretty much really stable for it. They used the pounds a lot. Um, if I got here, we have a one pound note from George VI. So it's pretty big. The, the, the designs are fine. They're not, they're nothing to scream home about, but they're mm-hmm. sort of, you know, you've got a watermark of Captain Cook in there, a bit of a scene of, I think that might be agriculture in there. Then we saw the Queen Elizabeth coming in. We saw a bit more notes coming in. So there's a, a 10 pound note here with, I think that is our, it's our Philip. And this was the last series, part of the last series of um, pre-decimal currency. So pre-decimal currency is pounds, shillings, and pence and such from there. Then around the fifties, there was late fifties um, when who was prime minister Menzies. Menzies was prime minister and he tasked governor, governor who was govern, the treasurer at the time, Harold Holt. Um, to look into Australia's transition into decimal currency. Because in order to do the maths, it's 12 pence to a shilling, uh, 20 shillings to a pound, so technically 240 pence to a pound. To do your maths and to the sums, it was very confusing. Mistakes were made. It was very hard to do. And obviously, a lot of countries already had decimal currency, especially the United States were the, the forefront of that. So Australia did the process. And then 14th February 1966, we went from pounds, shillings, and pence to dollars and cents. So one Australian pound was equal to $2 and that gave us our first paper currency. So we have a, you know, 
Got a one dollar note. Which again, for many listeners and potential viewers, like, I didn't know this was a thing until you know only a handful of years ago because <laughs> you just weren't raised seeing this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so one one dollar, so ten shillings was equal to a one dollar. So you see the color, this color scheme is the same. The size is a little bit different, but that helped assist the transition into um, decimal currency from there. So the one dollar note, we have the we got the two dollar note. So you can see that's John MacArthur I mentioned earlier. We got Marina Sheep, which we brought to Australia, William Farrow on the back. Uh, we got a $2 note, and then we had the $10 note that came in soon after that with that as well. So that's your $10 note. So Francis Greenway, who's a famous forger who became an architect across um, New South Wales, and Henry Lawson. Everyone knows about Henry Lawson, the, the, the famous um, author. And then we had the $20 note with Kingsford Smith and Lawrence Hargrave on the back. So you can see the same colors. So again, the color, the color scheme was the same. The £10 note was the same color as the $20 note, and that helped ease with the transition. The five cent, ten cent, twenty cent coins had the same dimensions as a sixpence shilling and a florin, so same weight, same dimensions, and that's why we got the sizes of our coins that we have today because of the proportions of the weight to the silver coins from there. Um, and then, yeah, we kept going to paper currency. The five dollar note was introduced in nineteen sixty seven. We had a fifty dollar note in nineteen seventy three. So, you know, your, your standard fifty dollar note had florin on the front and um, including his Ross on the back. So, real science theme, you know. Help found penicillin, one of the first founding fathers of the CSIRO right there. And then in 84, late 70s, early 80s, we had high inflation. Um, we, inflation was raging 10% per annum and it was pretty crazy stuff. So there was a need for a $100 note. And this is known as the famous Grey Nurse. So Douglas Mawson, the Antarctic Explorer in the back. This is probably my favorite note because the story of Douglas Mawson is incredible. If you haven't read it, you do need to go and find out about his story. And John Tibbet, the um, astronomer who discovered one of the great world's great comets back in the 1850s, 1860s. So we're in the eight, in the 1980s, uh, we had paper notes um, and the usefulness started reducing. So the use of life of paper notes, especially $1 notes, $2 notes, were only lasting about three to six months because the high, the high value of inflation, the purchase power reduced, so using more notes. And so Paul Keating introduced the $1 and $2 coins in 84 and 88 respectively from there. All this time through the 60s to the 80s, there was a project with RBA and the CSIRO to create polymer banknotes. So when the $10 note was first issued into circulation, this note, there was a big forgery that occurred with that. So a lot of $10 notes were forged straight away. Um, and some details, you can tell a forged one from a real one because there was some detail in this corner here known as the Times Bakery forgery because the Times Bakery was put in there. So the uh, RBA went straight to CSIRO. We needed a banknote that is durable, that is um, you know, forgery proof, um, can you work on something on that? So they spent 20 years working on this on this note, which came up to be this, the world's first polymer bank note. Mm -hmm. So this was released in yeah, 1988, um, Bicentenary of, Australia, of European Colonization in Australia. You've got the first fight on the back. On the front, you've got a, a, an Indigenous kid on the on the back, and you've got a holofoil patch of James Cook right in the corner. These notes actually didn't start off great. great. This foil at the top here, um, in the first batch of them, were able to be scratched off. So a lot of notes from the first batch, the foil was scratched off. They paused the release. Diabe decided, oh, wait, we can, put, we can put another little, I guess, protective covering over the back and front. They did another batch of them and they were seen quite favorably. They, they were durable. They last long. Only size is that they were quite big. So they're essentially the same size as the paper 10. That's quite big. Um, so given this, this was essentially a field trial for introducing the world's first series of... Per Polymer banknotes and into into circulation, 
1992, we had our first um, $5 note, which is this. Well, you might know something different is that it's not the same color that you're used to. Yeah, it's a and lot I'll, more paler. It's a lot more paler, but I'll get into the reason why in a minute. Um, and then we had a $10 note. And, then this is, and this is actually a $10 note I've got here from 1993. So this is the first one. The color is very rich, very mm, deep. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so you can compare the size of the $10 notes from here to here. Look how big, smaller that is compared to the original paper one. It is a big size. And I think a lot of people really appreciated that. The tweed on there was introduced in 94. 95, we had the 50, but also we had the recolored version of the $5 note. So what the people found the issue was the the five the $10 note, sorry, the $5 note, which is like a palish blue one, people were actually confusing with the $10 note. And for me, I was like, maybe, I don't know, but this is actually a much better note anyway. So you can see the difference here. Much more vibrant, pink, orange, red, deep, deeper colors made the big difference. $100 note came out in 1996. Nothing really happened until 2016. So there's a bit of news that leaked out in 2012 that Albert were looking to get introduced to a new series. They went through a wide variety of designs. They spent millions of dollars in, in, in the process. They settled with design. And 2016, we came with the... Um, what's it gone? There it is. I, I love seeing your notebook there. There you go. <laughs> of cash <laughs> that's sitting our next generation banknote. And it's something I actually neglected. We actually had, we actually did have a special note that came out in 2001. Um, this is the Centenary Federation. You might yeah, remember this. I've, so. I've seen that occasionally, yeah. but it doesn't, doesn't circulate it's around. It's funny because people, yeah, people tell me, oh, is this real? Is this legitimate? So yeah, it came out in 2001. So sometimes they still find them in circulation, but they're mostly withdrawn a few years later. But this is the next generation banknote. And this is really good because a lot of our polymer notes were getting counterfeited. Not a high amount, but it's still high enough to be concerning, especially the, the 50s and the 100s were getting counterfeited. And the 50s is always the most, especially a counterfeited old old 50, especially going to a nightclub. You can't really check. You can't really see the features. It's, it's too difficult. And they're finding more and more and more. So that, that drove the, the, the need to modernize that banknotes. And so what's great about the series is that it's the edge-to-edge -edge clear window. A lot of countries have longer windows, especially before we need... So if I show you... Let me find Canada's one here. So Canada issued some banknotes and their notes are like this. So that's the older 10, not the new 10. And it's it's a big window, but it's not edge to edge completely. So it sort of stops there and it sort of stops there, mm. but it's a much big no bigger note, a bit more secure. And so the RBA decided to go to the next level and go edge to edge completely. And this will involve various stages in terms of the production process. So they have a clear polymer layer, they have the sort of the cloudy, I don't know, cloudy layer is not the right term. They'll embed the security features within each of the, the, the clear strips. So um, to be able to do that, it's quite incredible in that. They've got rolling magnetic ink features in here um, and then intaglio printing. So if you feel um, your finger across a banknote, you can you feel that the um, the ink is raised. So that's known as intaglio printing. As, as opposed to offset, offset printing is where you feel no, no it's just all smoothness in that. So tally printing is a really good way to field a note and know that's legitimate because they've done another layer of ink on top of these existing layer of ink. So 2016, that came out. 2017 to 10, 2018 was the 50, 2019 was the 20, and 2020 was the 100. And that's essentially where we are now. So that's essentially the history of Australia's physical money. Oh, that's insane. I mean, I, I, I'd sort of heard and seen some of these notes yeah. on, again, the occasional documentary, but 
and actually me seeing them up close, like far out, we've, we've come a long way, but yeah. you just said there, like one of the empowering things of how this currency has evolved is almost the prevention against forgery, because mm. that's a whole nother, we will talk about it, the idea of counterfeiting and forgering notes, but there's so many security features built into these yes. currencies. And uh, you said, you know, some people probably have no idea of what they do and why they've been there. But mm. I mean, I've seen some of your videos where you talk about some of the intricacies and details of it. But I mean, when you're looking at how far we've progressed in oh. developing these yeah. notes, I mean, what are some of the, I could say, coolest sort of features on these notes that just people wouldn't even know, realize that that's what separates it from a, a good forge? Like, and how difficult yeah. it is now to forge? I mean, now, let's, like, let's, let's get a 50 out. I've got a 50 right, right here. It is near, this is near impossible to counterfeit. And, and people will try. But the hardest thing for this note will be getting a clear window edge to edge. Because like with the old, let's say, let's say we get an old 50 out here. Or even uh, like the, the Canadian one that you showed yeah, before. There's there little, you go. Yeah, different. yeah. so with the old 50, you can literally just punch something out. You put a clear cellophane in it. You put some white out and you create something cross. Easy, done. Because you can sort of try and, you can closely replicate the material if you sort of try really hard. And you can use an inkjet printer, get all that. Because especially worn 50s, you can't really feel the entangle they're printing as much anymore. These ones, your main security feature is that it's end-to-end. If you don't see it end to end, and some people try to forge these already, they it's you, you, just you tell clear, instantly, you can tell instantly because of that. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And you can tell do these rotate in the right way. You've got a reversing fifty. So this is the the Rukun Church that's from where David Unipon used to be a preacher at. The fifty when you shift the colours around that way, you can see the fifty alternating accordingly. Um, this doesn't have a watermark. So the old fifties you have. So the old fifties you have to watermark because you can sort of put it up to the light and then see if coat of arms in there. When you have security features like this, you don't need to put a watermark. We're beyond watermarks now because they can easily be forged. You can easily put a watermark on any piece of paper, get it commercially done now. So your cliff strip is your main one. You've got your rolling color effects on here on the black swan right there on the back. There's also UV features. So if you turn lights off, you get a UV light. It will show you the year of printing on there. So it'll show on here. Oh, okay. So this is a, this note was printed in 2018. Um, when you put a UV light, it will say 2018 on there. And then on here, on the other side, the swan will appear in a UV glow in there. So you, you don't need to go crazy with features, but you can have highly sophisticated features that allow you to have the integrity of your notes still intact. Because once people lose integrity and faith in your bank notes and your currency, no one's going to use them at all. So I think, I think Australia's always had this measure to continuously evolve its currency in order to be ahead of the forges. And the fact that our first Palmer series and our new Palmer series was about 24 years in the making. We've had other currencies that have gone through two or three different currency series. And so like the UK, for example, in that same time went through three different currency series in the time we went through one. So that shows the integrity of their currency. That shows how hard it is it's to forge. And I think with that, when you spend a lot of money investing the technology, these notes last longer. If you, and I think part of it's to do with the usage of currency these days and its role and stuff. But the average useful life of a $50 note is now, it's, it's beyond, well, it's about 22 years, if not more, if not more nowadays, because it's secure, they last longer, um, people trust the note, and, but also other factors such as people use them as a form of wealth, storage of wealth rather than transactional purposes anymore. So, you know, with these notes, I think we're going to, I won't think we'll see a new series of notes for at least another 20 to 30 years if we're going to still be using notes in the future.
Well, we'll get to that bit, but yeah. is, has Australia been pioneering this technology then? And, and have other countries started almost copying what we've been doing? Because looking at your book there and not the viewers won't be able to see yeah. the whole extent of it all, but I mean, you've got countless bills from all across the world and you can just see that some uh, arguably behind the eight ball when it comes to like the US, for example, oh. I, I wouldn't know where the <laughs> security features are on that, but you'd know that that at least in all the documentation is that the Benjamin Franklin, the hundred dollar bill is the most sought after sort of counterfeiting oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, money. But then are you seeing that other countries are now looking at Australians notes and being, geez, we've got to adopt these sorts of security features. I mean, yeah, who's well, leading this charge? Well, it, it is Australia that's leading the charge or that led the charge initially. So the next country that introduced polymer banknotes into the circulation is in New Zealand. There's a New that Zealand would make sense. There you go. So I mean, <laughs> yeah. like New Zealand, obviously when you've got a small country, is not worth it for them to start their own printing works or their mints, for example. So New Zealand uses Australia services. This is New Zealand's banknote, which is great. It's, it's, it's very similar to what we had in the beginning. Same type of materials, same type of windows, all that kind of thing. This would have been 1990s. Yeah, 90s. So oh, this is, this would have been mid-90s when New Zealand put in their polymer banknotes in. Um, and so other countries. So Australia prints many countries' banknotes. It prints Vanuatu, Singapore, Brunei, Vietnam, all that kind of thing. But now because the Mint realizes the sort of the patent has ended in, in terms of the, the te technology, they've been selling the technology to other printers all around the world. So the substrate that we use on our banknotes is called Guardian. Um, and then that Guardian substrate has been sold off to many things. So Dealer Roos and one of the major printers, Canadian Banknotes been another printer. So what's happened now, a lot of the bigger printing companies have been able to use Palmer technology, but because they're larger companies, they have a better economies of scale than what we do. So Note Printing Australia, who's the note printing arm of the Reserve Bank, they've been innovative and done their own thing, but so have other countries as well at the same time. So now, for example, New Zealand now gets the notes printed in Canada, believe it or not. So, so New Zealand introduced a new series of banknotes, I think it was 2015. So this is made in Australia. This is made in Canada. But again, they don't have that edge. That no, they don't. Top to bottom, which no. you think if ours had been released, then surely that would be the, the instant sort of copycat. Oh, syndrome. exactly. And if you look at it, this is Britain's latest note. This is a 50 pound note. Same thing. No edge technology. This is what, this was 2019 or 20, yeah, 2020. But again, nothing special. It's like foil that I wouldn't say it's counterfeit. I don't think it can be counterfeited well, but the, the, the technologies they're using on this note is nowhere compared to what's used on this note, for example. So in terms of Palmer, many printers are now using Palmer banknotes to print. However, Australia is the forefront when it comes to the features within Palmer technology because they've always been developing the technology. They've developed hundreds of features that they can use and they've selected the, 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 the few that they can put in there. That's going to give the most security to our banknotes from there. So we see a lot of countries, you know, UK, Canada, um, Malaysia, some countries use a mixture of polymer and paper still. So Singapore, for example, their polymer is on the 2, 5, and 10, but they use paper for the 50 and 100 because the 2, 5, and 10 are your most circulated banknotes. So you generally the lower denomination banknotes are using polymer because it reduces the wear costs and increases the useful life as opposed to a paper note, for example. So Australia is still the leader, but also at the same time, Australia hasn't actually won an award for, like every year there's an award for like the best banknote like the most beautiful banknote and funny, funny. Most beautiful or most perfectly designed not to be counterfeit. Well, I mean, that would well have to but be the problem is it's, it's, a, it's a subjective thing and that it comes down to, there's a, so there's a society called the International Banknote Society um, and there's a bunch of members all around the world and they look at banknotes and they'll each year they'll nominate who their pick is for banknote of the year. And last year, believe it or not, it was the Philippines that won it and it's this note here. 
the thousand peso banknote, but it was made in Australia. So it shows that Australian banknotes and Australian banknote technology is still very good and superior and is highly sought after because of the expertise that they've had for decades in that in that space. Jeez. And I mean, I can now, I mean, even me, I was itching going for my wallet being like, you know, I want to start looking at my cash. But, yeah, yeah. And I know a lot of listeners will probably be doing the same, but you said there, there's this transition that we, we don't use cash or where we're progressively going towards a society where having cash is almost a luxury in some regards. And it was saying before we started, you know, the pandemic, there was almost this association that oh, having cash and using and paying you with your coins mm. and your notes was somehow going to contaminate and give people COVID. And then you saw businesses just stop using it. And there was a lot of other issues behind um, get going away from it. But there was this adoption of just digital currencies yeah. and, and just Apple Pay, really, yeah. and just doing things that way. I mean, where are you seeing that impacting I guess where we're going in the future, will, will cash still have a place? Are we going down this path of crypto taking more of a spotlight? Yeah. Are we going to always have a blend? I mean, I can, it's hard to say. And, you know, the scariest thing I think, which is not related to the cash, but, you know, government control yep. currencies, Definitely. which is just a, a terrifying uh, yeah. reality to think about. But I mean, where are we, where are we heading and, and where do you see us sort of progressing towards? It's weird because I think we need to guarantee the accessibility of cash. That's the first and foremost thing. And central banks all around the world, especially in Europe, have been very strong into guaranteeing that to populations. I think the viewpoint, of, I think Europe is still a decently high cash, especially like that central Europe, they're still very high cash usage. So European Central Bank have said, we guarantee the future of cash. We provide cash for as long as people need it. But that's been a common theme across ECB, um, the U, um, Bank of England, Reserve Bank of Australia, Bank Reserve Bank of New Zealand. They're saying, we'll continue to provide cash for as long as people need it. So in the end, the, the use of cash is going to be demand-driven. And at the moment, it's about nearly less than 20% of all transactions is now cash. Most of it is all, you know, other formats, you know, you're paying, you know, bank transfer straight away on your phone, apps, you know, the new, new payments platform with OSCO and, and um, you know, being able to transfer money immediately is, is seamless. Um, Apple Pay has been Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, whatever Pay, your Android Pay has also made it seamless in that. The, the problem is what we're seeing here is that, I think, I think part of this byproduct of COVID and we've seen this rises in conspiracy theories and stuff. And a lot of people saying, oh, government's here to control our money and there's some digital currencies and stuff. All reserve bank, central banks are investigating the possibility of digital currency. No one's been more advanced in it than China. But China is not Australia. It's not a same societal shape, structure, surveillance, and all that kind of thing. It's more so how can we improve the transactional payments of our system with, by reducing the transactional cost as much as possible? Because the problem that we see with digital payments right now is the transactional cost is still high. Um, and you know, you, you're getting charged 1%, 2% on every transaction on top of that. And some people, and, and I think if you look from an economist perspective, it's like that 1%, 2% transaction fee that's being charged to the, to the merchant, is that the trade-off for you having to collect cash, security, going to the bank every day, depositing that? And so is that balance in the trade-off is, let's say you're taking $10,000 a day, that's $200 that's going to be retaken away from fees. Is that $200 that you earn in a day, is that worth it for my time that I'm not going to count the money up going to the bank and deposit it? So it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis. That said, cash needs to exist in order to be its sort of base system. If technology fails, internet downturn. Like I went to a bakery the other day and uh, 
um, internet was at, were out. So they can't use the FPOS machine. Yeah, the FPOS goes down. Yeah. And you've seen it with cold yeah, and it. it's just, it's bedlam. It's just exactly. Chaos. And I use, I and I'd be, I mean, I probably use card 80% of the time. Because I want to earn this quick Qantas freaking flyer points, you know? I can't travel about it. Gamification is everything. That's it. I know the gamification, that's it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and also part of these, I want my money to work for me. I don't want to spend money off my debit card without earning some sort of reward from it. Yeah, it might mean there's data that's evolving that people know you, companies know you, what your spending habits are and whatever. I think if people say we want privacy, you're fooling yourself because your phone's already tracking you, your internet browser history is already tracking you. And it's like, it's not saying that you should accept it, but it's also be cognizant of the environment that you're in with that but cash needs to still be around because one it needs to be a contingency system two it needs to be an accessibility point of view that you've got low income earners who low income earners and older people are the most likely to use cash still right because cash also has a psychological effect when it comes to budgeting so we've seen these envelope stuffers and all those kinds of things where people are now putting money into envelopes because for them that's their budgeting method that's work however what i see in the future is that the role of cash will change from a transactional point of a transactional tool to a store of wealth instead so people store cash like 50s and hundreds like they would store gold would they store any other forms of things that are wealth bearing kind of assets in that respect so we see 50s and hundreds they are being demanded more than possible pre-covid we had 74 billion dollars of banknotes in circulation now it's 99 billion dollars in circulation so you've had cash usage plummet since covid from about 25 to about less than 20 percent However, cash in circulation has increased by 25%. Even though it's gone down $1 billion in the last year, it's still up 25% from pre-COVID. And this is because people still value cash. People still hoard cash. And most of the cash that's in circulation are 50s and 100s. And where are those 50s and 100s being stored? They're being stored under mattresses, in, in cupboards, in shoe boxes, and whatnot. And even if people will say black market, black market probably only makes about 6% of all banknotes in circulation that are, are, are trying to be accounted for. So cash still has its role, but governments need to be proactive in telling people cash will still be there as long as you need it. And so it comes down to us as a consumer, us as a user, the person who's, who's facilitating a transaction, shall we use cash? And then if we demand more cash, then shops will be more, more accepting of using cash again because they have no choice. It's like, so my parents ran a Malaysian restaurant for 16 years. They took them forever to embrace FPOS. They didn't use FPOS until probably... Well, they closed last year, 2022. They didn't start using FPOS till 2017, right? Because people come in restaurants saying, oh, can you use my card? So no, you got cash on, there's an ATM across the road. But when, you, when the bank across the road closes down and you can't use the ATM anymore, then you're forced as a person to say, oh, no, we, we can take card. But then it's come and gone the other way where people are saying, oh, we don't want to hold cash anymore. Can you just pay by card? And, and the laws in Australia state that if you state the form of payment at the point of service, then it's fine on them to not, not be able to accept cash as a form of payment. So again, it's going to come down, has the consumers have driven the use for FPOS and digital payments? Consumers then who are afraid of losing cash, they need to demand more cash and start using cash more often because if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. That, that, that the, the classic scenario from there. Rightly or wrongly so, but if governments, are, I think the RBA and the government needs to be more proactive in saying publicly, cash will continue to be there for as long as you need it rather than having people in the background with the loud noise and being all conspiracy fear conspiracy you know being that, that conspiracy theory mindset in that and making people fear the loss of cash i mean there was an article in the news the other day saying oh cash will be gone by 2013 i mean you can't just get a trend line and just use that trend line and and, and predict oh it's gonna be gone no you can there's you know we've seen a lot of things with technologies and people there's still gonna be a level people use it. it's gonna flatline at some point 
but it's going to flatline at a decent percentage. The cash is still going to be there. So my guess is best as anyone's, but is more so what can we do now about it and how can we ensure the accessibility of cash moving forward? Yeah, because I think like, there's still definitely sectors of, of the market or even just trades mm. and whatever that mm. they just prefer cash. And there's yeah. something you said from at the outset about like learning about financial uh, like saving. And, yeah. and I've always felt when I was growing up as, as I was used to get cash and now it was a transfer, it was so much easier for me to budget having physical cash mm. and having that instead of having money just go into my debit account or whatever and being like, oh, I've got this much. You certainly can just lose track of how much you're spending as soon as you go bang, bang, bang on your yep. phone or whatever and, and your card. And there's just been this almost loss of yeah, how do you how do you manage your finances? But the idea of Europe with cash, the point of sale, you can either do card or cash, yep. puts the power on the consumer yeah, to decide what they want. Um, and I think that's incredibly valuable. But why, why is Australia sort of gone the opposite in some regard where companies or businesses can go, we're not going to take cash because we don't want to? I think it just comes down to convenience. I think the way our financial system has operated, especially in, in a physical sense, it's hard to go to the bank. Uh, the bank's delivering. Yeah, they're all closing they're down. Closed, now. They're closing oh, down yeah. and they're open at 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Everyone's working that time. And then some branches are working on a Saturday and then you want to go to the bank on a Saturday. Oh, you've got to get a massive appointment. Line as well. Oh, yeah, you've yeah, got yeah. to, oh, we can't, we don't accept deposits for cash on a Saturday. Oh, please use our machines. So the drive for that has been led by the banks. And unfortunately, our banking system is dominated by four banks who've got significant market power over the system that they're the drivers of it. And so that's where the government needs to intervene in terms of having to ensure banks must achieve minimum obligation when it comes to accepting cash. There's stupid things like ANZ saying, oh, we don't accept cash between 12 and 2 p.m. in the middle of the day. What sense does it make? What, mm -hmm. what difference does it make for me putting money in, into the into my account in the middle of the day as opposed to doing it one minute past 2, 2 p.m.? Well, and I've seen the opposite where you have to give valid reasons as to why you're yeah. try, trying to withdraw a certain amount of cash. Mm. There's almost this association that you're using cash for dodgy services and yeah. stuff. And it's like, well, why do I need to justify what I'm using my own money for? Yeah. And why do I have to go through all these loops to or hoops to go to get just some cash yeah. out from a bank, which is just such a, a flip to where we've traditionally been. But my, my thing on that is that there's a large level of paranoia from the big banks itself after they've got done by Austrac because ah, they were so lapsed by that in the first place when all those, like, you know, when Commonwealth Bank got fined those, those tens of millions and NAB and 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 um, Westpac all got they all got fined, so they're all being ultra cautious. But the thing is, you can it's still you're still allowed to possess more than ten thousand dollars in cash. It's just they need to record it to Austrac. But the, my my gripe is people want to go to the bank to take five grand out, and they're still being asked the same question. What and and so it's 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 not so much the the, the governments are, are are controlling this; it's the banks are controlling this because one, they don't want to make the same mistake again. But two, they're being overzealous, but also they know that they, if they keep doing this, people won't demand cash. Therefore, the cash handling costs reduce. Change the habit. Change, change the habit. Yeah. Therefore, if the cash handling costs is reduced, then that that improves the bottom line for the for the shareholders. Same thing. So when the whole coin collecting thing started going in a boom, people were emptying out change machines at the bank. So they're getting the debit card, going to Commonwealth Bank, putting two grand into the machine, getting two grand, two dollar coins out, sifting them through, putting them back in. I remember seeing one post on Facebook, one person went through $130,000 of $2 coins in a, in a month period. Jesus, that's so to, to find To find the exact so much coin. And so Combank now have said, nope, you need to be a business customer to access the machines. So you can't now use it. You can't now use the machines to access the change. And it's like, now, so what stops it from legitimate people who want to get change? It's like, so you're not going to go to the ATM. Someone needs 10 small notes. 
they can't go to ATM, get a $50 note and put it in change anymore. But, and, and so like ANZ have done the same, Bankwest have done the same. I think Westpac and NAB are the only ones that can still use the change machine without being a business customer. But the banks are the ones, as long as they're market power and as long as they get the resources, they can set that rule. The small banks like Bendigo and stuff have no incentive to hold cash because they got so little customers market. coming in. Yeah. So they're not going to hold cash as much as well. So they've got no need to make, create change machines and coin deposit machines and whatever. Because people come in to deposit cash as they need to. The withdrawals are going to be very small. They're going to incentive to provide any bigger services in that. And that's why I think cash and, cash and transit companies are now merging. So everyone knows Armguard. Everyone sees those big trucks in front of banks. And this process goes the other one. They're now merging. And they're the two biggest cash and transit companies in the country. We used to have hundreds of companies. It's now down into the dozens now. And they're going to keep getting smaller as cash starts getting reduced. And what we need to recognize is not the government's really driving the changing habits of cash. It's the banks that are changing our habits when it comes to the usage of cash in Australia. Well, even personally, when I've got a 50 or $100 bill in my mm. little wallet, I'm so much uh, less inclined to go and split that up and have to deal with the <laughs> coins. And I just, I, there's just some beauty, like looking at all those ones you brought up before, they're, yeah. just, they're beautiful art pieces mm. and there's just such a value in actually holding them. And that's where, I mean, a lot of what I talk about is the investing side. Yep. You know, I talk about stocks and, and cryptos yep. and, and, and all of this. And your point there about the idea of transitioning to people actually holding on to physical cash uh, as an investment model. Mm. Um, what do you, why do you think that's going to be such a growing interest? I mean, you're in the community now, which yeah. is just, you said, exponentially increasing with interest from yeah. education and awareness to yeah. actually seeing a value in collecting mm. certain notes or having it on hand, similar to, to yeah. gold. I mean, where do you see that really taking off? And you said, is it just going to be 50s or 100s or is there value in, again, other countries' currencies? Yeah. Or, I mean, what's going to happen there? And is that the fear about, is that crime and, yeah, and yeah, these yeah. sorts of dodgy services because you're just suddenly sitting on hundred thousand, a million dollars worth of cash? Yeah, exactly. sort of I, know, thing, I, yeah. I think the cash driven part came out of, from COVID where interest rates were record lows. We had deflation. So people weren't putting money in the, people putting money in the banks and they weren't getting any interest. So two options, put in the stock market or most will withdraw it out and just keep it under the bed. So as, and what we see as if inflation keeps, if inflation goes low, people hold more cash. If inflation is high, people don't invest cash. It's, it's the opportunity cost of holding cash. So we're going, to start, we're going to keep seeing fluctuations. And we've seen cash holdings fall since inflation is now hitting. Because you can make hit. a fair bit just sitting exactly. in the bank. Yeah, That's yeah, it. Yeah. If you're earning 5% in the bank, what's you holding your cash at home and losing 8% of real purchasing power under your mattress from there? So right now, cash holdings as itself are, are reducing. But you're also going to, get a, 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 you're going to get a decent chunk of people who want to diversify their investments. They think holding cash is safe. So they'll have a decent chunk in the bank, but they also have a decent chunk that's kept in their homes or whatever, because for whatever reason, there's always a little, people will always have some sort of paranoia to whatever level saying, oh, the banks might have a run, I need my cash or whatever. And there's always this safety. And, and you know, coming from Asian cultures where cash has always been king, like you see it firsthand where, you know, my parents and my relatives of that generation, they will always hold cash because that's just a thing. But also more informed now that they are able to really think about, you know, investing in property, investing in shares looking at long-term putting more money into their super and realizing you can make your money work for you rather than you having to work more hours in that so that's one element of it in in that respect and i think cash fluctuation cash will be held as a store of wealth but the level of holding of wealth will depend on the rate of the relative rate of inflation at that point the other point it comes down to rare banknotes and stuff people have been trying to invest in banknotes and coins for a very long time like the older issues when you talk about things such as a 1930 penny which can be worth up to a million dollars We've got old banknotes like the one I showed you here. Um, yeah, I paid $950 for this. 
and I see this as a long-term investment because it's a it's a it's a very collectible note. It has history behind it, and there's not many around. Oh, there's gonna be a finite the... supply of them, and it's not any yeah, more coming exactly. Off the market, and yeah, you know, and, yeah. and this is very poor condition. Note. A note in that condition, in uncirculated condition, would be hitting up to ten ten thousand dollars, if not more, in that respect. But we saw a big boom pre two pre GFC. Um, a lot of people were pouring money into the rare banknote market. There was a company that was based in Perth called a Rare Coin Company. Um, GFC hit people, and GFC hit plus there were changes in the superannuation rules back then. People wanted cash out because the Rare Coin Company made a guarantee to people say, "Oh, we will pay you back the minimum the amount that you bought your bank notes for." But when the market crashed and people cashed out, they had their liquidity, mm-hmm. and they were and so and I think the guy went to court and had got went, I don't know if he went to jail or not. But that's led to a big crash in rare banknote um, values, and I think it's what we saw the same with art and wine and and whiskey as well. But now with the popularity of you know coin and banknote collecting, we're seeing those rarer banknotes really slowly, slowly creeping back up in value. Not 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 to the two thousand eight levels, but we're seeing levels where people are now seeing there's some real potential in those holdings. So, it's the difference between holding physical cash as part of a I guess balance or part of your investment portfolio in general. Or looking at your more speculative things, looking at rare banknotes as part of that same category with art, wine, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, because I, I look at all these communities and, and even tracking Rolexes, for example. Mm. They're one of the best, best returning. Oh, geez. Hopefully you haven't done anything too bad there with the water. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, but there's been this massive... I'll give you a second. To that's all right. Yeah, hopefully yeah. It's, all, um, it's all okay. Most of it's polymer. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. But I think the paper ones might be in a bit of strife. Hopefully not. We'll get sorted out. Yeah, jeez. Jeez. Um, bit, bit of a pause of proceedings. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, no. you, 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 you can put this on. You can tell me this is not how you to. It's not how you deal with money. Yeah, no, this fair. Not... Well, and I think that was the thing before about yeah, yeah the, the hobby versus the, the investment. And yeah. you can see from the way that you appreciate all of this, there's definitely some that are an investment, um, but others is just an appreciation for yeah. history and the where where we've come from. And yeah. I mean. Um, the community that you've managed to create uh, and continuously build, I mean, that must be just such an enriching experience having people come to you and, and grow up. But but where have you seen the massive interest in this sort of community come from? Like, why why do they why are they following you? And what have you noticed as being the most trendy and interesting topics that you've managed to to put out to people? I think people always still get hooked in by the value of a coin. It's something that's just something that's in their pocket. And don't realize that it look closer. Oh, there's a little detail I never noticed that could be worth a bit more money. And that's where they're coming in because that's where the news articles will pick up. So when I do something about a coin value or banknote value, they're like, this will get some more most clicks. That clicks gets my engagement on my page. Those are things that trend on my page the most. But they're the things I don't, I wish those things aren't the reasons why people come to my page because it's for me, it's a bit of a necessary evil to start making videos about coin values because that how you, you got to if you want to grow your following, you want to grow your page to to a degree, you got to talk about this. But you, I don't want to talk. I want to talk this talk about it in the most honest way possible. Yeah. Saying here's this, but here's a caveat in terms of why it's worth this much, or what you got to look out for. Not all coins be worth that much because it all depends on condition and etc. But from there, then people get hooked onto the stories about it. And sometimes when you tell something that is emotionally connected to them. Like I did a video about, you know, Douglas Mawson on the paper hundred and talking about his struggle through Antarctica, how he lost his two, two mates, one fell so down the crevice. That's what you said was your favorite story. Yeah, then yeah. that's it. And when you tell people that story, it's like, oh, wow. I didn't know we had people of that nature on our notes before. And people don't know the stories, incredible stories of, you know, John Monash or 
David Unipon or Edith Cowan, you know, and, and they're behind it. And so when you create something, and I guess with most social media, people connect best when it's emotionally connective. And so, and people don't think about money as being emotionally connective on its abstract sense. But when it comes to banknotes and coins, and that's being the base of money, and money becomes a part of your decision-making day-to-day, whether have you got enough money to pay your mortgage, how much of your budget's being done for that. And for me in that role, is I'm not educating about financial literacy in, in that way as much as I, as I would love to. It's more so bringing it down to the base level, taking a second look at your note or coin and saying, uh, this is the reason why I've we've got you know we've got this money here. This is this is a great story behind it and all that kind of thing from there. You know, um, sorry, I'm just no, 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 rightfully so. I mean, that just, was a bit of a wa- blunder that, that, that we've had. That water's just sort of crawling across. <laughs> the thing Mate, gets, well, hopefully, it doesn't get to too much of the uh, the technical equipment either. Oh, yes, this is just slowly, slowly. Um, I have to dry it off for later, but yeah, no. Literally. But yeah, no, I think that's I think that's the point here. I think it's more so what people emotionally connect with the best, and then from there we can. Well, hopefully whatever story resonates for them, they connect and connect with the hobby from that. I don't, in the end for me, if this crashes and burns for me tomorrow, I'm fine. I think for me personally to make, meet so many like-minded people, um, people who are really genuinely interested about it, create a real strong tribe community around a hobby and, and really, you know, I think I've done what I've done for the hobby. I think I, there's probably no one else in the country. And I, I know it sounds arrogant in that respect, but I think, for what I've done and what I do for the community, you know, I, I do big giveaways. I've probably, of all the sponsorship money I've earned, I've probably given away 80% of it over the last three years. That's probably, probably spent nearly 20 grand on just giving away prizes to people or, or spending money to on traveling across the country and meeting these people and building new relationships and all that kind of thing. I think that's what I value the most out of that. And so when, when people see that genuine human side of that and really know that you're not in it for the fame or the money or anything like that, as much as it's a nice side, I guess, um, nice There's byproduct of it. That are made yeah, the opportunities, having, and I think yeah. more so, it's, it's great. And I think, and I think about, I always think about what's my next step here. And you know, I, I'd love to work, would love to work at the RBA one day, work at the RAM in terms of currency and stuff. But also realize currency is sort of dying in a way. And so, how do you look at a? And this is a question I get a lot when I get questioned in the media a lot. It's like, why are you talking about something that's dying? Essentially, it's like it's not really dying because. Yeah, in the future, the usage is reducing. But have a look at the past history of it. And there's so much to learn about and so much to talk about. That It's it's a snapshot of what we are. And the Royal Australian Mint is very big on saying all the coins that they make is part of the greater Australian story. The coins are designed and saying this is an element of society. And I feel I look at our banknotes, I look at our coins and think about that's our history right there. And you can tell so much about it and you can deep dive into things and learn more about it. I think, and that's with a lot of things that you, that you see that people are hobbies into. It's, it's, it's a hobby that, that we can fixate on that thing that brings us joy. Um, and I'm just glad that a lot of people now share the same passion that I do. Yeah. Well, it starts from when you're a kid and just having yeah. the infatuation and you could say being yeah, the only one doing it. But the, when you think of the big picture of how many people there are, there's yeah, always yeah. people that have got a factuation with it. It's just the, the rise in these communities and tribes that have been formed. Yeah, exactly. When you look at your page, you've got yeah some video and content that just resonates so much with people. It, I can tell there's probably going to be listeners here that have now just had a complete 180 degree on their <laughs> approach to, to cash and currencies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm heading, heading, heading away soon. And the first thing I do whenever I go away to a different country is take some cash. Yeah. Because it's just, that's just what you do. And it, I can always see there's going to be a need for it. And as much as we want to say, we're going towards digital currencies yeah, or just it. everything's on FPOS. There's just such a beauty in cash and 
I think you can see that and hear that through mm. the way that you've described why you love it so much today. But for those that are, again, infatuated now with this rabbit hole, because we could say have just scraped the iceberg yeah, so, of, yeah. of, of cash, the history of, of just <laughs> like Australia, but there's all the other countries and all the other currencies and mm. what's coming in the future. But for those that want to follow you and I guess stay on top of what you're talking about and even connect with you, I mean, where, where can they go with yeah. Instagram and TikTok? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, you know, TikTok at the history of money and then Instagram is at the history of underscore money because someone took the history of money on Instagram. Or you can find me on LinkedIn if you want to, you want to connect professionally. Um, Joel Kendai on LinkedIn. You can find me on those three places. Um, essentially, if you do, if you want to find me, if you want to ask about how much a corner banknote is worth, try and research some of it. You know, I've got a lot of videos out there. There's a lot of website resources. If you're still stuck, let me know what you try to find. Let me know what you struggle with. And then I can help you through that. Do a little bit of the work, your work first before I can come in and help you on that. No, I appreciate it. It's, uh, yeah, I think I've had that many coins throughout my time that I've gone, oh, this is cool. But again, it's that, that thing where as soon as a few years go by, you forget and then you're like, oh, I've got a pile of cash. I'm going to go dump it. But it's such a good thing to, to have a bit of a yeah, foresight as to what it is. And as you said, it's, it's history printed. And yeah. you, there's so much story and rich and, and culture and heritage in all of these banknotes in Australia and coins uh, and the evolution. And uh, I mean, in closing, I mean, what what can we expect? Do we anticipate any changes with Australia and the way that we're going? Uh, you know, the other countries, I don't know if it, it was ever considered, but there was speculation that the $100 note in Australia was going to be sort of reduced. I don't know if that's a wise tale now, me saying it, but it, what, what potentially could be coming in the future? Are we moving away from less coins, more cash, notes, or what do you, what do you prophesy? Oh, I think, I think this is probably more so what I want to see rather than what I think is going to happen. Well, you know, um, you've got an audience that might, yeah, might yeah, change, no, I change think, the way. Firstly, I think our coins need to reduce in size. Our coins are way too big. If you compare them to New Zealand's coins, to America, America's coins or British coins, they're too heavy. The 50 cent coin is probably the largest circulating coin in the world right now. So in order to reduce, metal costs are skyrocketing and the Mint saw a significant reduction in their profit in the last financial year. I think by like $10 million, they, their net profit fell. Um, I think that's partly due to, you know, it takes, it's now 12 cents it costs to make a five cent coin, for example. It and just it, doesn't sound like it doesn't, it's it doesn't sound right. Scale, it yeah. doesn't, exactly. So coins will go small and thing. The $100 note may be a question in terms of, it'll be that whole money laundering kind of thing. Like how Singapore got rid of 10,000 and $1,000 notes. It's, it's the same thing in that respect. We might see a, a largest denomination note go, but other countries may take other ways. And because of inflation, they might go increase the size of their notes down the track. So, I, my gut feels that we probably won't see any significant changes for at least 10 to 20 years. But, you know, we might, King Charles is going to be on our coins come December. He probably won't be around for another 10 years after that. So we might see William on our coins or we might become a republic. But yeah, I think my biggest wish, I guess, in terms of the future of cash in Australia, let's, turn, let's make our coins smaller because they're too big as it is in terms of a fiscal sense. And I think that's why that's pushing the reluctance of why banks and, and businesses are wanting to hold cash. So that's my number one wish. Well, my only bias is that the 50 cent coin is great for heads and tails and flipping it for sports <laughs> activities and things. But I mean, yeah, I can't say that's going to be the swag point no. for it. But no, I appreciate the conversation today, Joel. It's, um, it's been, well, yeah, fantastic from my point of view for learning, but I know there's going to be a lot of people who've got a lot of questions. So yeah, if you're listening and you've got questions, reach out to, to you. Again, don't mess, message you and just ask you to evaluate your entire collection. <laughs> um, but no, I'm, I'm hoping to get you back on again to dive down to some of the niches um and again more of that awareness and education but yeah thank you so much really, for thanks for having me on yeah. yeah i really appreciate it thanks for having me on 
Thanks for listening to the Markable Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to like and subscribe. You can follow The Market Bull on our socials at Twitter and LinkedIn by searching The Market Bull. You can also subscribe to our newsletter on the website by visiting www.themarketbull.com.au.